Welcome to Twin Speaks is intended for mature audiences. Also, content warning, we will be discussing topics such as domestic abuse and violence. If you're okay watching Twin Peaks, you'll be okay listening to us. You may also notice some technical difficulties in this episode, but I think you'll enjoy how we handled it. Thank you, and welcome to Twin Speaks. I like how I'm starting the episode with opening a can. Um, I have just tried White Claw for the first time ever this week, which sounds so weird being a Long Islander. And I'm like, everyone's been having White Claw for years. I'm like, what's the hype? What's the hype? And anyway, this episode is brought to you by not <laughs> <I> White Claw. <laughs> not by, <laughs> not by, way, by Janine trying White Claw for the first time. Just like Twin Peaks. <laughs> Everything's a first time for Janine in this show. <laughs> White Claw, sponsor us. Last week's episode, we discussed episode two slash the third episode of the season. So we have pilot, episode one, episode two. Uh, Janine shared her brand new thoughts on the episode. I crossed over. Like I crossed over into fandom, I think, at that point. Last episode, for sure. Can you hear me? Nobody's perfect. Isn't that the truth? That's the episode that does it. That's the episode that'll do it. And uh, and and we also discussed the legacy of that that wildly famous red room scene. Holy hell! <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say about last episode. Holy hell! I got enough to focus on with the current episode. Every every episode, there's more. Every episode, there's just more and more shit to handle <laughs> like we do this one episode at a time you could easily break down each of these episodes into like three parts oh yeah just like really dive in deep into <laughs> character and everything i don't know if i attempt to break it down into three words that would be intense but segments oh no three sure. three parts like oh, yeah like like break it into like three different episodes of this podcast like we could do like three episodes of one episode oh yeah but we don't have time. Imagine doing it, the, uh, describing the episode though in three words. That would just, just be a, a headache waiting to happen. <laughs> um, uh, but this week, uh, this week we are talking about episode three, the fourth episode of the season, titled "Rest in Pain." I like the title for this episode. After watching it, I'm like, that was just a proper title for it. Because there is so much pain in this damn episode. Let's just start with that. There is a lot of pain. There is very little resting. <laughs> um, <laughs> very little resting too yeah. after last week's dream episode. Uh, everyone in Twin Peaks is wired up. Everyone is, uh, the tensions are high. Yeah, sure. on edge and everyone's emotions is just all on the table. Or just like everyone's, yeah, losing their ends and and cracking really in this one so janine with that said <laughs> nothing beats the taste sensation when maple syrup collides with ham <sighs> so let's meet down at the great northern as we go scene by scene discussing episode three rest in pain so janine mm -hmm. walk us through uh walk us through the first 
Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so great old Coop, though I have to say Cooper is, I'm, he's testing me. He's a little bit messing with the minors, or at least with Audrey, and I'm getting, so every time they're in a scene together, I'm just like tensing up like, okay. Like I get that this is in the early 90s and this was less probably talked about and it was more ambiguous, but also ex- still extremely inappropriate. But um, okay, so yeah. We still talked about that. It was it still was, yeah, about I know. That. I'm ta- <laughs> I wasn't talking about it because I was literally coming out of the wound. So, um, but I was not even a born You yet. were not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, okay. So I uh, that said, I still am intrigued by their conversations so Andre and cooper um have this little exchange you know obviously not surprisingly a little bit weird and and fishy but um we learn a little bit about uh one more about one-eyed jacks um every time i hear it, i'm still gonna think of the bar in italy but yeah i am getting I don't really believe Audrey is uh, involved in Laura, like Laura's murder. I don't think like I do find the more that she starts to like reveal things when she's especially when she's talking to Cooper. I mean, I still think she's a manipulative character, but I do believe that the way she's starting to talk more vulnerably, I guess, that, you know, she owns up to the fact like she like I wasn't friends with her, she says, and she's like very much seems invested though and in a way that i can still find that fishy but another part of me is kind of like too invested in other characters and their suspicious kind of qualities as opposed to her uh lucy and truman uh when they listen in okay this did uh i was kind of sitting down watching that scene when they're when lucy's taking notes lucy reminds me i don't know if anyone's anyone listening is like a nancy drew fan out there um but two (laughs) two really good friends of nancy drew and um the stories is bess and george like these two ladies i think they're actually sisters from what i remember um and bess is just like lucy reminds me of bess like very kind of light and bubbly and very invested in wanting to help and also just a is is this the new Nancy Drew? This is like the newer just like over the course of history. I'm a PC game oh, Nancy oh, Drew oh. fan. So I know Bess and George through playing the games. And from what I remember, her interacted with the company that built the Nancy Drew PC games throughout the years. Um I think they started around like the early 2000s. Um they they definitely do derive a lot of like the traditional stories like nancy drew books from when they were first originated they put a lot of that of course into the pc games so the way i know bess and george and their characters like george is very kind of like put together and like has a bit more of the the book's brain or just a bit basically very mature and then bess just comes in being like hey it's happy hour let's let's what are we gonna have to eat or like let's do this and let's do that oh but i really want to help i think i know like and she's like the type of person that stumbles upon an answer with luck and lucy seems like that character to me but on that note i (laughs) cooper delivering all the details in his dream and of course the one detail he can't remember is what (laughs) um what cousin replica laura told him in his ear like i uh, i just 
Of course. But then I also wrote my notes like, well, if he did know, then the show would be over <laughs> three episodes, four episodes in. <laughs> I mean, not that I would put a David Lynch to like solve the murder, like, you know, in the first step, you know, to just say it. But like, yeah, it'd be, it'd be a little disappointing if by the fourth episode we already knew it. Yeah, then it would be the it would be what we look forward to nowadays when it has those like really intense HBO limited series. Um, but Twin Peaks is not that. So which it's kind of funny, though, this week I did have a dream myself that I woke up and did not remember. But I had all the feelings of which do you have you ever had that where you like wake up from a dream? You know, you had a dream. Can't recall anything whatsoever from the dream. But besides the feeling, it's feelings it's left you with. I remember just. That literally happened to me on my commute home today. I, I fell asleep on the subway yeah. and I woke up and I was like, oh, in my dream, I was like doing something memory based. And that was all I could come I up. mean, that's much scarier to like wake up in the subway assessing your feelings from a dream you do not remember versus waking up in your own bed. So, I mean, <laughs> I give you credit yeah, just, for collecting yourself I, after that. <laughs> My girlfriend gives me a hard time for falling asleep on the subway. She's like, how do you do that? How do you do that? How are you not just paranoid? People are going to take your things. Yeah, I don't think I could do it. I do it all the time. Um, Let's just say this next scene that has, what is it? What's this guy in town that is just basically doing the forensics and the autopsy, uh, but he's quite snarly? Albert? Robert is his name? Uh, Albert. Albert, sorry. Okay. Um, so yeah, Albert and Truman and, um, Hayward, there's just basically two, what did I write? Like a whole bunch of white men being babies and it's like a whole bunch of ego in the room. And I was just like, okay, everyone needs to calm the fuck down. And it was just, it was, I I get why Doc, I get why Doc Hayward is upset. Oh yeah. You know, he knew Laura, he was, you know, he was close with her family and everything. Uh, Albert's just being a, yeah, Albert's just being a, a rightful. I mean, I kind of get it too. Like, he wants to make sure that, like, we can get all the data, but, like. Like, I could see no. that they, yeah, Albert, I can see he's coming from a place of very much, he's very articulate about his job. He's got, he's very focused and driven. Um, and I could see Hayward's perspective and Truman. I could, real, honestly, I could take a moment and see all their perspectives. Maybe it's just maybe the, you know, 2021 janine who's just like okay <laughs> it's a whole bunch of like white men still being very like masculine or like having a moment of being a little too much yeah. and i kind of was just i think i got a bit annoyed at the scene because i was just starting to think like everyone's putting their egos and emotions first that like they're forgetting that laura like they're getting a little off track from i think also it makes sense because they're having these emotions of you know and the stress and intensity of wanting to solve this murder but at the same time that's getting in the way and it's like it literally ends with albert falling on top of laura i'm like how much worse could this get this is so bad in that scene i was just like poor laura you know i think you're absolutely right yeah it's it's a hard scene to watch it's just very uncomfortable and it made me just think i mean you have this like dead woman's body that's laying on a table and all these men just yelling and kind of losing track of what the you know i get that when heads clash they clash but it obviously takes away from the focus of what emotionally matters also which i guess really does lead up to the whole kind of pivotal moment of like how this is an episode um leading to her funeral so 
I can definitely see how the emotions would be high around this time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're, you know, you're not in a good space when Benjamin Horn has the moral high ground. Yeah, when Benjamin Horn is the only level-headed one in the room, you know you have an issue. Yeah, that you know pissed me off just a little bit. Um, yeah, I think it's like it's it was just in that particular scene, it was showing that the grief was kind of it was reminding me that excuse me, drinking the White Claw makes me have to hiccup. Um, it was just <laughs> oh my God. Um, anyway, I know. Oh my God, don't <laughs> two sips. <laughs> Um, but I think, yeah, it was just one kind of scene that was showing, which helped transition into the next scene showing Leyland. I, in my head at this point in the show in Twin, or in the town of Twin Peaks, I, I have mainly empathy or sympathy for like uh, Laura's parents still at this point. They're the only ones that I could see that have like a sense of grief that is, I mean, it's overriding them too in ways, but like. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just some people uh, I'm starting to notice where their coldness lies versus how much they actually care about what happened. So we go to the next scene with um, Leyland. And I think it has to do with the show that Shelly saw in a previous, like, Invitation Something to Love, which I'm starting to see. Yeah, which I'm starting to see this is a bit of a repetitive thing. I don't know how important that I feel like it's not that important. I keep kind of forgetting about it until i see your notes <laughs> but i'm now i'm gonna be a little bit more mindful of it um so leyland has this woman this woman looks like she just invited herself in i'm like how did how did he how did she just walk in this woman dressed in cobalt blue um madeline this is what i don't like we've now are a few episodes in settling into twin peaks i'm you know assessing the characters there's been so many characters to address in the show and now like four episodes in well episode three four episodes in this girl madeline shows up and i'm like who are you excuse me like no there's been enough groundwork of characters and i'm kind of like i don't trust you one bit because you did not show up just now this isn't okay um and also i don't know i didn't uh trust her tears in that moment they were a bit too uh soap opera even though this show obviously has a very a lot of soap opera moments i just not a fan of someone that comes in this this late into the show now when i say this late it's like <laughs> still a month in but um before i say too much about madeline does she does she look familiar at all Okay. The actress, the actress playing Madeline, does she look familiar? At all? Um, not. I mean, not that I can think. Of. Like, I, I, I thought for a second when I saw her because she was wearing like a very vivid blue. I was like, oh, is this a reference to David Lynch's Blue Velvet, like his film, um, or like that he made? I think later uh, down the line. But other than that, no, I didn't have any kind of flashback moments of remembering her. Um. Yeah. So I did find. Uh, one thing I did find also a little bit, even though this was a very short scene, I did find it a bit interesting that because I tend to watch nowadays um, TV, like I watch shows with subtitles. And um, so when watching this particular scene, it was overlapping with Leyland and Madeline's dialogue and the, the TV show's dialogue. So it was like a little moment of 
confusion of the overlap, but I was kind of a little bit interested in what the show was saying in the background, or I thought it was like the nurse that was next to him. I, I don't know. It was a little bit interesting to me. And part of me thinks with David Lynch, I'm like, watch, this is going to be something that is very important to understand for later down the line. Like this, the show connecting with what scene and the character showing up in that scene. Anyway. Yeah. I don't know, Madeline, you can't just walk in this, this late, into Laura Palmer's death, showing up on the day of the funeral like any relative would. <laughs> she has a defense, but I'm like, <laughs> no. I need to read everybody very thoroughly with the show, you know? And uh, if you don't cry in a way that is believable to me, you're guilty. <laughs> Crocodile tears for Madeline. I... I can conclude at this point that Cooper is in love with absolutely everything. I really want to find out something that he doesn't like. Um, he like took me back to nine-year-old Janine upstate at my grandma's house with the ducks on uh, like in the lake at my grandma's pond right in front of her house. Ducks on a lake. How, what was it? He's like, how beautiful. Or <laughs> he's always at like the, the polar ends of things. Like he's never just like slightly one thing or the other. You know, yeah. like like even earlier in the episode, like we learn a little bit more about his, you know, his investigation style yeah. and how like, you know, he'll have this like very spiritual, like reading into his dreams kind of way of investigating a crime. But then he also talks very scientifically, very empirically, looking at evidence, you know, questioning witnesses. He's 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 never just like one thing or the other. He's also very serious, but then in this scene, he could be a little silly and 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 goofy and innocent, naive. Yeah, I was gonna say like I did say he was consistent, but at the same time, I mean, he's consistent in his work and with how um, passionate he can be, for lack of a better word. But at the same time, like how you've told me before, he is basically David Lynch himself with how the character is described he's also extremely spontaneous or at least you don't know when he's going to flip you know like the coin because in this particular scene he goes from being like oh ducks like oh how lovely and then he just like goes off on leo in a way that's just very calm once again like how he's approached bobby and other you know sassy characters before but yeah leo can go fuck off and and cooper as I said before in my notes, I was like, and he he goes off on him. And I'm like, yes, go. Is that short for Leonard? Is that a question? <laughs> Shut up. Cut your ponytail off. It was a little sure. creepy when when uh, Cooper was just like smiles, smirks and just goes, you're lying. And I'm like, oh, like it's a little creepy. But at the same time, if there's anyone that deserves that sort of interrogation, it's Leo of all people in this show. So, um. Yeah. And then and then he just reads off his entire criminal history. Like, yeah. That's what I mean by how he just goes off on one. I'm like, wow, he just goes off on every little thing about Leo that he did his research before and he came he came so prepared. He showed up so freaking prepared. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. He's drunk in Lasorda nineteen ninety nineteen. Broken taillight, nineteen eighty nine. You ripped the tag off your mattress, nineteen <laughs> like everything. Everything. Great. Um, fast forward to Bobby striking a pose. I mean, um, uh, so one thing I have assessed 
up until this point. I know I've definitely have talked in previous episodes about how I don't care for Bobby or he just gets under my skin. He's in a, he can be an annoying character. Um, but I very much am starting to sympathize and it annoys me actually, but I am starting to sympathize with Bobby's character, especially when he's next to his father, who to me is like the epitome of toxic militant, um, masculinity. Um, Oh, like in a way that's kind of like that sort of scary religious kind of pa- patriarchal father figure. But he, you know, just from the first time we saw him, he snapped in that dining room scene. So, um, yeah, um, you know, I don't really know how to assess Bobby other than that. He just I feel a little bit bad for him. I understand where he maybe gets his sort of um, lack of emotional maturity from, of course, in his family. And I think it's it's something I always come back to with like the characters in Twin Peaks is like we have to remember like he's a teenager. Yeah. You know? Like whenever we talk about, you know, James, Donna, Laura, Audrey, any of these characters, like you have to remember, like, they're teenagers. Teenagers are already going through so much. <laughs> and shows are so good and at casting have... people who are not exactly looking like <laughs> teenagers. <laughs> I mean, listen, Dana Ashbrook's hair in this scene is just <laughs> astounding. It's astounding. It is perfect. I want my hair to look like that always. I don't blame you. Uh, but no, but, 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 you know, they're teenagers. They're full of flaws. They're full of uh, doubt and, and, you know, self deprecation. Yeah, so like, of course. Yeah, of course, you know, yeah, you're, you're going to sympathize with Bobby a little bit. You're going you're, you're to see where he comes from a little bit. Yeah, and it really it really makes it makes sense when you when you start to understand a you know a character's backstory or you know just a person's backstory for that matter. You know, the more you learn, the more you can make a sensible conclusion of how you see them. And so, with his parents, I mean, you have his mom, his mom Betty, who is as delirious as a doornail. Like, I don't, I don't, like, okay. Um, her little smiley face when she walks yeah. in the room. Are you guys ready? Going to a funeral. <laughs> you guys ready? Like and it's literally right <laughs> interrupting Bobby. You know, shouting. Um, yeah. Okay. So Hawk, Deputy Hawk, the one who sucks at his job. At least, still, he can still prove himself. I'm sure, but I still think he is not proven liable at. Um, searching for the one-armed man. Um, he's, <laughs> I think it was like Truman or something said, they're like, oh yeah, he's like really good at investigating or something. And I was like, have you guys seen yeah, him yeah. walk into a morgue and walk out? Like he is not. He says, yeah, he's just like, you know, Hawk, Hawk's an excellent tracker. I'm like, who's <laughs> pulling this out of their ass? Like, uh, yeah, I was like, okay, clearly they have not seen him go searching for a one, one-armed man before. Um, I just love how he's assigned to that, and we all know. <laughs> but it did make me may uh, have a little theory, and I'm not sure. I, I just have a theory that what happens if the reason why he's so shit at this is because he's actually working with the one-armed man. Like, I and I know that might seem weird because when we see that scene, when he goes into the morgue a few episodes back and he sees the one-armed man that just walks out, it would be like, oh, like, how could he be working with him if he's, you know, suspicious of what he saw? But what happens if he was actually just working with him and he just wanted to make sure if there are any witnesses that it looked like he was looking at something fishy, but really he was just trying to cover the one-armed man's booty. <laughs> anyway, 
<laughs> That's an interesting observation. <laughs> I will say that. Theory number number five hundred and twenty-two from Janine that just falls off the onto the floor because I have all these <laughs> theories that I just drop and forget before we even record. But yeah, that was a particular one that made me kind of curious. I haven't, I, you haven't pointed out anything red in this episode yet. So that's, <sighs> that's your first telltale sign. Oh my God. I didn't, I do, <laughs> I did put in my notes one particular red thing, but it was at the end. So um, that's a good point, though. The scene with Albert Truman and Cooper, I, I was like a little bit. This was like a moment where I was like, oh, okay, Albert really is good at his job, or at least he was able to deliver so much in like a short amount of time. And um, I took note. This is like the first time I took notes. I basically took notes like Lucy in the beginning of this episode. I when Albert's talking in the scene, I was like, okay, so we have um, two different kinds of twine. I used to work in a craft shop, so I was like, ooh, is it gold? Is it like <laughs> I went down like <laughs> I got all crafty. But um, so we know that it's two different bits of twine that were tied around Laura. Also, this was like a really kind of creepy part is that Cooper was able to, able to kind of recollect what he Albert said to him that it was like the first moment of potential proof that Cooper's dream was connecting to reality. Um, so that was a bit mm -hmm. interesting to me. Um, yeah. Sometimes my arms bend back. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It made me rem remind me of how she spoke and the way she was moving in that scene. It's just like, oh my God. It's definitely making me think of all the supernatural elements that could be, you know, happening in the future of the show. Um, but yeah. So there was Twine. We know that she. I mean, this kind of wasn't a surprise because of like Coop calling Truman out on this when they were reading her diary, or I think in her um, safety deposit box or whatever it was. Yeah, she she did a bit of cocaine. Okay, so we know she did drugs. Um, <laughs> cocaine, twine, there was a soap trace um, behind her neck. Anyway, my name's Lucy and I take notes. <laughs> That's what I... <laughs> <laughs> Which Albert, when he, I, like, when he shows, like, how the soap must have gotten there and he's like, the, the killer must have kissed her <laughs> like this. Albert, man, have you have you kissed anyone before? It was like a person trying to learn staging for the first time in their life. But also, I just want to give in a you know a, a a proper applause to Cooper for really sticking up for Twin Peaks when Albert tries to you know put down a report against Truman. Um, that was a really nice scene. I, like or it, it wasn't even just that he was sticking up for Twin Peaks. He was just sticking up for the like he was just showing his level of empathy for a town in the short amount of days that he's. It makes me really right away. It just made me think I want to see him solve other cases like outside of Twin Peaks. Like I would really like to see Dale Cooper and how he's approached all his work before this point because it just shows how much his heart is in it and how much he's just like. He kind of was finally acknowledging in this episode, taking everything back to center, being like, at the end of the day, a girl, a young girl was murdered in this town and this has changed people. This has done, this has affected everyone. This is something that has to be respected and acknowledged and, you know, about her, you know, her family, the neighbors, all these things. And I was just like, yeah, like, you know, go eat one, Albert. Like, he was just like... <laughs> like, he he was just, you know, being a whiny baby and... 
but <laughs> and it's so personal to Dale Cooper that if I'm not reading that scene incorrectly, he's invested in potentially moving there or like he wants to get a house or something in Twin Peaks. And I was like, yeah, Dale, move in. Be neighbors with Josie and Truman. That would be so cool. <laughs> Those ducks really convinced him to stay. It was the ducks. Of all the things, like I thought it would be the coffee, but clearly it was the ducks that sold him. Um, yeah, but we do know at least that, at least I think so. we do know that Albert was, for the most part, doing his job correctly because it sounded like it was adding up what he was giving to Truman and Cooper in that scene from you know, from the examination on her body. Uh, also because of the letter J once again showing up. I've lost track of how many times the letter J has showed up, but it's because... J I, for Janine? It's because, I, yeah. Uh, I ain't gonna say anything, but yeah, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Ed and Nadine, this was the first time I was... Just like Bobby in this episode, or, or yeah, with Nadine, I was starting to feel a little bit of a soft spot. Um, she kind of, I think, in the past two episodes or so, is showing this sort of, yeah, this really sort of sad, vulnerable side of her. It was funny because when I see the scene, I'm like, Ed, why can't you just be honest with this damn woman and like and leave her like he just looks miserable and like why is he not being honest with her and i forget she's also a very intense woman who lashes out but then she shows this kind of moments where all of a sudden a big reveal to me which i i don't know if if this has been for other people who have watched twin peaks before but i was like wait a second so norma and ed dated already in high school and i was like oh so that was a little bit of an interesting fact to learn now that like they actually have, I mean, I knew they had a history of having an affair, but now it's like they clearly have a history that goes way back. Um, yeah, like way, way back and that they used to be together so that even Nadine has like a recollection. Now it made me kind of assess her encounter with Norma previously in a different way that I'm like, oh, wait, so she even knew both of them at a point when they both dated. Um but yeah, um, I definitely had a soft spot for Nadine in that moment when she's just what what she referred to herself as a little brown mouse, and I was just yeah, like she, yeah. Okay, one thing I have to cover that I am absolutely melting over is Audrey's hair. For the funeral. Oh my god, isn't it great? I mean, obviously we see her in the scene first before the funeral when she's eavesdropping, you know, on um in that office scene or something. Like, it basically is Dr. Sh I didn't, I forgot what her brother looked like for a moment. And then I could gather, I was like, who, because obviously in the scene you can see Dr. Jacoby. I very much was paying more attention to Dr. Jacoby because he, I think, is the most suspicious character, I think, at this point. Um, But yeah, her and her brother... I mean, sorry, Dr. Kobe and Audrey's brother are just in that scene. And I was just like, what is going on here? But I also was too distracted by her luscious, beautiful hair, which is yeah. says a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is distracting. It is beautiful. It's goals. Uh, Sparkly. It's goals. goals. It's just like every goal at one point. I can't speak for all women, but 
come on, like there's got to be a point, whether it's been in a dream or in reality, where you just want to have like this deep V-neck blazer on, like this femme suit and like slick back hair. And it's just like, I don't know if it's a basic instinct, like Sharon Stone moment or something, but yeah, Audrey had it. <laughs> Snapped oh, my fingers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I want Bobby's hair. You want Audrey's hair. It's a good episode for hair. It really is. And hats, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so we obviously know that Audrey's capable of snooping in this sort of like hidden, like peephole, like situation. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the hair was magnificent, but I didn't forget this was still a very strange scene that was someone able to spy on another within her home, I, I think. I wasn't really sure where that was. But yeah, I found that to be quite interesting. But I think even in this scene, we we, we get a gentler side of Dr. Kukubi too. Yes. Talking with Johnny, you know, helping him take the, uh, the sort of Native American headpiece off of his head. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I, I, I I think that there's, uh, you know, and then you hear, uh, 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 you know, Ben and, and, and Mrs. Horn, you know, Audrey's mom and dad arguing in the background. Um, I think there is this sort of gentleness in that. Yeah. Still don't trust him, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think you should. I mean, I don't, Mm-mm. you know, he's, he's, he's a creepy dude. Yeah. I think he's just, he's too... I see too much creepy for me to, and again, I've already made room for sympathy for Bobby and Nadine now that, nope, <laughs> Jacoby. <laughs> Sorry, bus stops there. Like, I can't. Wait no until five episodes from now, Jacoby, and then I'll hear your backstory and maybe there'll be room. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, so the big scene of this episode, the funeral, which Going into it, I was like, shit, it's going to go down. <laughs> it has to. Um, but yeah, the Reverend has like that passage that he reads. And of course, Cooper is, you know, monitoring the whole scene and watching Bobby. And the moment that James walks over, it's just a whole bunch of tension. It, it was something that is still bothering me because it's like, it's again still all these things things because Laura was murdered or just because this town has so many flipping secrets and people who clearly are haven't been vulnerable enough in this town to able to express their emotions you know in a way that is healthy but projecting it instead yeah it's just a very intense scene and once again kind of you know uh, dishonoring Laura's death in somewhat of a way um but one thing that kind of put me, put Bobby a lot more, I think, in my sympathy boat or card or what have you, he, when he starts, <laughs> when there's like this whole amen that's being kind of screamed, and then all of a sudden, yep. but he actually seems like he's approaching the, it's his first time showing, I think, us as an audience that he was kind of like dropping a truth bomb in front of everyone in that moment. I don't know, like it was obviously like a bit of a um, disrespectful scene in regards to what's supposed to be a peaceful, you know, situation, I guess. But yeah, I just thought it was really interesting that he was just like, you're all hypocrites and, 
you all knew she was in trouble and you didn't help her. And he also takes credit too. Like this is the first moment where I think Bobby for the first time in this whole show puts a little bit of his ego aside and he's like, I fucked up. You all fucked up. Why are we pretending that we're even honoring her right now? So, and that I think is really kind of bold because it's just like, it is when people, when someone calls out the bullshit for what it is, regardless if it seems like it's chaotic in that moment, it's like, there's a bit of respect there if someone's being really honest about what they're approaching. So in a way that kind of put, put him, it made me kind of feel less suspicious of him. I think he still has done probably a lot of shit like other teenagers have in the show, but yeah. Uh, yeah. But, and, and, and contrast that with what Dale was saying earlier, you know, mm-hmm. again, we, we go back to David Lynch and keeping the lights light in the dark, dark, you know, Cooper was just defending this town. Yeah. Cooper was just saying, you know, how how the death of this young girl matters and how important it is to people and all these things. And then here we are at the funeral and Bobby is is making the case against this town and against these people and how they didn't care and how it's only after she died that suddenly they're all showing sympathy. They're all full of shit. They're all liars and and, and hypocrites and you know, it's sort of this condemnation of the town, whereas in this very same episode, we had someone from outside of Twin Peaks coming in and being like, oh, this is a beautiful town. People care. People, mm-hmm. you know, are sincere here. It's such a good um, conversation topic because this can apply to so many, so many conversations in which it, how much is something genuine unless it's before something can be prevented? Like... It's a bit of it's basically a question of how much a facade like a facade exists within a town, characters, morals, all these different things. And obviously there's such a complexity to it where it's like not knowing the future, not being able to always read a situation. But then it's kind of like, yeah, the more obviously as we go within this show, it's more of a question of how much did people know before she died, like before she was murdered. But again, though, it's this is this is what's so wonderful about Twin Peaks and the way that, that the show operates is you have this very serious monologue, this very serious tragic moment. It's a funeral. It's sad. It's dark, and then it almost turns into kind of like a comic relief scene as like Leland falls over. The coffin's like going up and down and up and down. It did like start to look like it was like becoming an SNL out. skit. It was just all, yeah, it really was like one thing after the yeah. next. I definitely thought it was interesting that Sarah, Sarah was like, don't ruin this too. Like it, it's gone to this point where I'm kind of, I really do feel bad for Leyland, but at the same time, I'm like, it's disturbing to, of course, watch him in his spiraling. Like he is spiraling in a way that is just full force um i do want to give credit to the log lady of course apparently of course the log lady would be front row <laughs> like right next to the reverend like not even just a log lady of course the log would be front row at laura's funeral that and um okay i know i melted before over audrey's hair but i equally melted as much over donna's hat i am so in love with Audrey and Donna's get-ups in these uh, this episode. I just, I'm like inspired right now that I don't, uh, it was, it was a good hat. I do just want to make, 
podcast note of this, there was a snippet in the funeral when it started showing some faces during, I think it was the reverend's um, uh, speech. There was a brunette woman. I'm not sure. It didn't look like this new character, Madeline. It was a brunette woman, and she flippin' looked like Laura with sunglasses on. Just gonna say that right now. I'm just... No one can see Mike right now. He has a good poker face on, but at the same time, I think he's cracking, and I'm gonna try and make him crack because, guys, if you're watching this, I have to say one thing. I should have said this from the very beginning. I'm very good at reading faces. Like I can recognize a face aged 20 years later and be like, oh, it's that person. Um, Mike is so quiet right now. I'm 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 assessing how much I want to say because I want to save you from sounding silly. Oh shit! Is that bad? <laughs> but and I thought I, I think, was. I think I think I can come out. I think I can come out and say because it it's not a spoiler, okay. and I don't want you thinking that I'm. I don't want you dumb. going too far down that. <laughs> okay. Because to some people, it's it's obvious. And again, you're not the first person to fall for this trap. Okay. The actress who plays Madeline is the same actress who plays Laura Palmer. What? <laughs> it's the same actress. How, oh, my God. There was no way for you to divert that to not make me sound dumb because I totally didn't recognize her <laughs> in the scene with Laylin in Invitation to Love scene. But how That's come I didn't I see? To... Wait, you're telling me that I could recognize that it's Laura when she has sunglasses on, but I can't recognize her when she's looking at Laylin with regular glasses on. In 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 your defense, she had she had the big glasses on don't it's a very short scene that she was in mike don't defend me like oh my god <laughs> this is why this is why i wanted to tell you now i was like i can't let this go on any no longer. i'm really glad like, that you did tell me now because you could not let that trail i would eat my eat away at myself i can't my cat is looking at me with in judgment because uh, even because in that scene with leland there's uh, on the episode of invitation to love there's the like they're doing like the opening credits (laughs) and in that show there's an actress playing two characters and then as soon as they show that in walks madeline so the story behind it is this basically what happened Shirley, the actress who plays both maddie and laura palmer Mm -hmm. um she was uh she was a young theater actress uh working in the seattle area um just kind of working the, the theater up there. And then she got cast in Twin Peaks. Basically, she was just going to show up, play the body, um, take photos and that whole thing. And then when they filmed the picnic scene, uh, David Lynch was so impressed by it that he later called her and said, hi, you know, we, we want you to come back and be in Twin Peaks. This is so. And as the story, as 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 Cheryl Lee tells the story, she says she, you know, she says to David Lynch, she's like, "But David, I'm, I'm you like uh, my character is dead." And all he said to her was, "We'll work something out." 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my god, that annoys no, me wrote... so much though. Like, I mean, it annoys me, but at the yeah. same time, I'm also impressed that I at least caught it within the same episode. But I can't believe how I read people's faces with sunglasses on versus regular glasses. I don't know how to collect my my mushed my mushed thoughts on the floor from that. I that's really interesting <laughs> though. That that's an interesting fact. Son of a gun. Oh, okay. Let's move on before I eat away at myself more. Okay, so at the diner. Um, we have Ed, Harry, Hawk, not to be judgmental, but Hawk, um, and Cooper sitting at the diner. And this is when it seems, so Cooper's getting introduced to this idea of, what's it, the book, the book house, the book house boys, I think, if that's, if that's what it's called. Yeah, um, Truman, Harry Truman's dropping some, like, supernatural tidbits now, too. I thought it was only Cooper now with the dream, and now we have, like, yeah, there's a dark, he just casually says, there's a dark presence in this town, but it's so vague, and it's so casual that I was a bit, I don't know. Um, and also, yeah, Shelly... Was I? I'm, I started realizing that moment when she's describing the uh, funeral scene and Leyland falling on, you know, Laura's casket. Um, uh, it's a bit rude. It's a bit so mean. mean. It's so mean. It's like yeah. I was just like, I the get that she has a tough life, but yeah, and it also made sense. I mean, it made me think like, oh, of course she's with Bobby. Like <laughs> if she's, I don't know, like that bullying kind of sense. But yeah, I was just like, oh, okay, Shelly, I, you know, I had a bit of a soft spot for you, but now I've made room for Bobby and now you can kind of step aside. Like I kind of feel very bad for her, obviously her, her household and how she's with Leo. But I was like, that is just so mean. That was really cruel. Um, I did like how Cooper once again called someone out very much blatantly ed in this particular moment so how long have you been in love with norma <laughs> okay so the one thing i can assess with the with the the book house or yeah with the book house boys they're doing some illegal shit we can say that right yeah. now <laughs> um jacques some, some jacques in a big uncomfortable pickle. bit of policing here yeah yeah i think when when Harry was describing that there's like this dark presence, I'm like, do you mean that you're basically doing really dark things in this particular place? Like, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was an interesting introduction for Cooper and Cooper of course is like going along with it, but still with a bit of a naive like or like innocent smile on his face. But at the same time, this guy Jacques, the bartender from was the roadhouse just casually getting gagged. Well, so this is this is Jacques' brother Renard. Oh, is, gotcha. Sorry, yeah, correction. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, Jacques is the bartender at the Roadhouse. This is his brother. Yes. Renard. So Jacques is the one that's on the phone that calls Leo up and wants Leo to pick him up right. because got it because um because Bernard was which, yeah. Which neither Jacques nor Bernard. <laughs> look or sound anything like each other they both nope. have different accents i didn't collect that they were brothers until after 
so Leo picks up or yeah, he leaves to pick up this guy. I think it's kind of a really important note to uh, to mention. Shelly's got a gun, people. Shelly's got a gun. And she was already like, I mean, in the last scene, she was a bit mean. So now I'm already a little bit like, oh, shit. I mean, of course, my instinct is he's got a Shelly's got a it fits too well. Um, yeah, she, like who she got. My instinct is she's going to use it, you know, on Leo. I mean, in a way, it's like from her, um, you know, like being in this abusive marriage. Like, I'm like, oh, she maybe she just is she's having a gun because now she's in resorting to protective, you know, defensive matters. I don't know. But at the same time, I'm kind of like that was casual. <laughs> he just walks out of the room and she has yeah has that so seems like an important important thing to remember down the line okay so our our sweet josie finally making an appearance i feel like she's been away quite a bit in the show i can't remember the last scene i saw her and maybe it was with the ledgers when uh when pete was helping her out uh behind Catherine's back yes. Right. Um, yeah. So Harry and uh, Josie um, and Josie's kind of having a heart to heart with um, with Truman. And this does make me concerned because I feel like we have not seen a lot of her character and I like her character, but her kind of um, theory that Catherine and Benjamin, it's not even a theory, really, like she's actually just assessing and and gathering the information that yeah Catherine and benjamin are very not so great people and it wouldn't be surprising that they would want to hurt her um also because Catherine is the most no like nosy character in this whole show thus far she is constantly voyeuring other people like or maybe it's just josie and truman she's you know watching but she's got like freaking bugs planted in the place like i don't like this woman don't like Benjamin. Don't like Catherine. They they can go fall off a cliff. To be fair, it's not really that she's got bugs placed. It's just one of those like it's like one of those like doorbell like the <laughs> doorbell microphone things. No, Mike. She doesn't it's have a like bug. super secret spyware hidden in the. <laughs> no, I know Catherine's not smart enough to have bugs planted in the place. But I'm like, this is me thinking that. In 1992, that's how big a bug would be planted in a room versus now. <laughs> that's, yeah, that giant box in the wall. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, correction, not bugging rooms, but she's definitely very, uh, she's spying on everything. And she's an uncomfortable character who clearly has her motives with Benjamin. So, Josie's not far off. I'm glad that she told Truman. Um, and then, you know, they have their own steamy, steamy moment. I'm rooting for them. They're a hot couple. They're, you know, one couple not cheating on other people, but also, like, they just seem like they, yeah, they seem like a good team. Not as good as Truman and Coop as a team, but I just realized now that I say that, I'm like, how many people in the history of Twin Peaks fandom have, like, shipped <laughs> Truman oh, and I? Ev everyone. Of course. Everyone. I do love how Truman shows his uh, expert tax accounting skills in this game. <laughs> yeah. He like opens the book, he's like, nothing looks wrong to me. It's like, yeah. how do you know? I don't know. Like, I like I feel like maybe I'm just about as smart as Harry Truman, like on kind of like a layman level. Well, 
True. If you handed me a book of like, you know, accounting information, I'd be like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. <laughs> well, <laughs> no idea. Harry has shown thus far, like, I think he's decent at his job, but he has had a few weak spot moments where, like, you know, he was like, I know Laura. And then Coop, Cooper pointed out that, like, do you really know her? Like, she was doing these things, you know, before she died. And, and then also, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if actually Harry, you know, I like Harry's character so far, but he t- does talk quite a bit of talk more than I think he is actually good at, if that makes sense. I don't know. I don't want to, like, shit on his character because I think I like him. But at the same time, if I like him too much, he could be guilty of something. So, who knows? Raising eyebrows are turning. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Like, just like a slight arch. Not not too high. <laughs> um... I do want to give Jacoby credit, and I didn't think I would ever say that, but just to yeah, his trench coat and that um that hat, and also he like Bobby previously putting a bit of his ego aside in that moment and just revealing a bit of an honest an honest truth about himself. He's like, I come off as someone that I think I care about. He goes, I try and give this image that I care about people, but I really don't. Um, I'm not a like. He just seems like he. I don't know. I found that a little bit interesting. It made me think that he may not be guilty of Laura, Laura's murder per se, but I think he still very much has high potential to be an accomplice in Laura Palmer's murder. So he's he's kind of going like full Doctor Manhattan in the scene for for anyone who's ever watched Watchmen or read the original comic. You know, he's oh yeah, he's kind of going you know like yeah, I just you know. I don't really care about these people's problems, but but Laura, like, you know, what about her? Very sweet. Yeah, that was actually very Dr. Manhattan. Good reference. So, just to conclude the summary of this episode, that final um, scene, my heart dropped. Um, I mean, Cooper... that Cooper and Hawk have that little discussion by the fireplace, and I thought this was an interesting... Um, conversation topic that like you're capable of having more than one soul or like I don't know I just thought that was an interesting thing and um, but Leyland poor poor Leyland Um, I think this is actually the first time I mean of course I've had my heart with Sarah and Leyland throughout the show and like in the beginning it's like you know you, you of course mourn the fact that these parents are losing they lost their daughter. Um, but, you know, I didn't really know the characters still. I was just meeting them. So, like, you know, there's th- at this point, I'm, like, looking at Leyland when, like, everyone's dancing around him and he's just by himself. It's, I'm now finally just, yeah, my whole, my whole heart, my whole body kind of just, like, slunk in, into my chair. And I was like, this sucks. Like, this is, I feel very very bad for the guy. I'm very concerned that he is so f- close to his edge that I'm nervous of where what's going to happen to him in the next coming episodes. Because yeah, I think he's lost his way in mourning her. I think the way he kind of just saying, will someone dance with me? Will someone dance with me? And it's like kind of, you know, connecting to the previous episode where he was wanting to dance, you know, with the music on and looking at Laura's picture. And it's just like, he's it's so sad the way he just starts repeating it and 
give credit to the guy that plays Leyland. He definitely, at first I've had moments where I kind of was finding it, it could come across comical because it's very dramatic and like sometimes a bit soap opera-y, but then there's just some moments that he delivers like this where I'm kind of like, there's no way you can not just like look at that and feel really shit um, for that person. So. Ray Wise is a very, very talented actor. Very, very talented actor. Yeah, I forget things he's been in. I remember seeing him like as a villain, I think, in something else, but um but yeah so overall this episode let's just say lots of emotions lots of intense scenes lots of yelling um but all the fashion (laughs) fashion and the hairdos made up in equal parts to that Uh, yeah so cheers Cheers to the costume department mm-hmm. on, on Twin Peaks, like showing up for this episode big time. Oh, yeah. Well, Janine, on that note, let's peek behind the red curtain. Okay. Go behind the seats. <laughs> All right. On this week's episode. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the production. We have some... Uh, new folks in the in the writing and directing chairs. Uh, this episode was written by Harley Payton and uh, directed by Tina Rathborn. So I'm actually really excited to talk about. Uh, this is our first female director on the on the show nice. thus far. Um, yeah, four episodes in, um, and she really, really had a great relationship with the cast. You know. Uh, she was just, you know, she was stepping in. This was kind of her first time working in, um, in studios. So I, th- I think I mentioned it in the first episode. So, so the pilot episode was filmed, um, mostly on set. They filmed, you know, at the diner. They filmed, you know, at, you know on location. Um, th- you know, li- these episodes, later episodes were all filmed in studios. Um, this was her first time working in studios. She she was someone who in past projects was used to working on location, but she really got close to the cast. Um, she compared Sherilyn Fenn, who plays Audrey, mm-hmm. to Marilyn Monroe, which is why we get that excellent opening shot. I can definitely see that. Audrey, yeah, putting on her best her best Marilyn impression, and um, Tina Tina Rathborn also mentioned that uh, she recalled Miguel Ferrer, who plays Albert, keeping the cast and crew laughing as he was uh, doing his bits and saying his lines and coming up <laughs> with all those great one-liners, chowder, head local, and all that stuff. <laughs> There's actually a scene that wound up um, on the cutting room floor. It wasn't filmed, but uh, it was originally written into the episode. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, the scene was going to have Cooper visiting the grave, and he meets an elderly groundskeeper. And the groundskeeper gives Cooper this long speech about how if he puts his ear to the ground, he can hear those who are buried singing. Which he would later explain is actually just the coffins in the ground expanding, and you can kind of hear the creaking sound. How poetic! <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Creepy, dark scene, 
but the scene was inevitably cut because mm-hmm. they were having problems finding someone to play the groundskeeper. Interesting. But on that note, you know, Janine, Laura used to say that I talk too much. I'll not make that same mistake today. Okay, but I'm actually going to. Because this week, on this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about the legacy of Laura Palmer's yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm not excited about murder. Yeah, I want to know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, not excited about murder. <laughs> uh, but this is sort of the, this is, this is really like the meat and potatoes of the series. Right? Mm, Everything okay. revolves around this inciting incident. Um, now, this isn't going to be, this isn't going to be our in depth character dive into Laura Palmer. I'm mm-hmm. going to do that probably at some point later uh, on this podcast. Okay. But this is really, I really just want to talk about the legacy of Laura Palmer's murder itself and what it meant for television going forward, what it meant for the series at the time, um, and really the impact that it had on television and pop culture moving forward. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, it wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be enough for Mark Frost and David Lynch to have just made this up out of the blue. Um, the character of Laura Palmer was partially inspired by a a, a 1944 film, which was called Laura. Um, <laughs> which was based on a 1943 novel of the same name uh, in which uh, there was a murder investigation of a young woman named Laura Hunt. Um, and the investigation, you know, there's there's a photo of her and she has a diary. And so it's very similar to some of the elements you see in Twin Peaks. Um, hmm. There was a lot of inspiration from Marilyn Monroe. Because you know anything about David Lynch, he loves his Marilyn. <laughs> he loves his beautiful blonde with tragic backstories and hard times. He loves writing that into his movies and TV series. The funny thing is, um, I didn't know that actually. Notable. I, I sorry, I didn't actually know that really. I the only thing I could reference when you said yeah. that though was um, Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive, which I haven't seen the film, so. Um, but I do know of it. But she has a very Regal. Marilyn Monroe look, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that is definitely one of uh, definitely one of the most obvious examples of David Lynch's um, gotcha. love love for Marilyn. And actually, we will be talking about Mulholland Drive later on in the podcast because there are some connections to the Twin Peaks world in that and that's all i'll say on that no but should i watch it or should i not in case of mm... hold off on it okay you let I'm me know when i can take a look and i'll, and I'll watch it because i've been wanting to watch that movie for a long time so yeah yeah um because it might be maybe something that comes up on the podcast at some point who knows <laughs> um but most notably uh most notably uh The murder of Laura Palmer was inspired by a real-life unsolved murder from 1908. Uh, It was the murder of 20-year-old Hazel Drew, uh, whose body was found 
floating in a pond in Sand Lake, New York. Wow. It's based on this a real murder? This is actually a... Yeah. Yeah. What? From 1908. And um, New York. So yeah. So, so Hazel Drew. This was uh, a huge story at, you know, at the time. And it was so much, you know, kind of... The story kind of got retold so much throughout history. And it was actually Mark Frost's grandmother who used to tell him stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the stories that she used to tell him was about Drew Hazel. And it always stood out to Mark Frost. So what? when him and David Lynch got together and decided that they wanted to write the show, Mark Frost's immediate first thought was Drew Hazel. This is, this is, or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Hazel Drew. Um, this is who I want to make the joke. This is who this character is. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, obviously it's so, you know, there's so many stories and, you know, forms of entertainment that we've seen that is based on true stories, inspired by true stories. But yeah, it's really cool learning about the, the true story and in our, in our, uh, home state. Goodness. Yep. Well, New York. There's tons of books and, and documentaries that you can look at and look into to, to learn more about Hazel Drew and, and, and that tragedy. But um, yeah, based on the real life murder. Um, but now to, 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 to talk, you know, that's that's what inspired this event and what inspired David Lynch and Marshall to write it. But this murder was, had such a profound effect on popular culture for a few reasons. I mean, you know, one of them being the fact that this was really kind of one of the first long-term murder mysteries that happened in a TV show. Um, You know, nowadays we have a lot of examples of that of sort of mysteries that get stretched out throughout a series and elongated. Mm -hmm. But really, this was the, the first one where, like, a character gets murdered and we don't find out who it is right away. I mean, prior to this, there was a, a 1980 soap opera, um, Dallas, which, um, you know, there was a sort of famous whodunit in which one of the characters, main characters, JR, was shot in the season finale and fans had to wait eight months to find out who oh, it was. grueling. And that was... Cons- <laughs> Yeah, and that was considered a long time. It was this big, huge event. Who killed JR? Who? Like, how did this? But Twin Peaks was kind of like the first one to be like, no, we're not telling you. Like, you have to, you have to wait. Um, and it was a, it was a, a, a phenomenon. It, 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 it's not enough to just say that like people were into it. People were losing their minds over it. Uh, there were t-shirts. There were news articles, and there was no internet back then. There was no message boards, Twitter, Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're so spoiled now. For anyone who's you know watching WandaVision or or any of these Marvel shows, oh, yeah, streaming we're is so a whole different now. life. I was just talking to my roommate about this the other day. Like, we were watching something that was clearly from I think late nineties or so, and it's on a streaming service, but they have it edited in a way that you can remember when the commercials came in. And I were just like, we were just looking at it, and we're like, "Wow!" Like commercial, you know, television and streaming services. Kids don't know how good they have it right now. Like it's just, oh. <laughs> it's weird. It, 
it's I mean we're 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 so spoiled by, yeah. by the amount of information that we have and you know you can watch an episode of of like your favorite crime mystery or like your favorite sci-fi show and then look up a YouTube video explaining to you every bit by bit yeah or like our podcast yeah, right now they didn't have that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly literally I'm literally self referencing <laughs> literally this podcast uh, but they didn't have it back in in you know back in 1990. Mm-hmm. So people would write into magazines, newspapers, you know, the, the back panels of comic books, you know. And there's, you know, there's some really interesting finds. There's, um, it's, it's a few episodes after where we're at now. Mm-hmm. So I would not suggest looking it up, but there's, uh, you know, you can, you can look up some of these. Like, for example, Mark Kano, who is uh, writing for the Chicago Tribune, wrote an article, Tokyo Laura. Here are some clues and suspects. Like, <laughs> like news are you know, journalists were writing about this. It was a phenomenon. People wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. And even Laura Palmer herself, Cheryl Lee, uh, was, you know, in an interview, had said, uh, quote, it kind of cracked me up how many people wanted answers to who, uh, to who killed Laura Palmer. Did. Because that murder was kind of the ball that got everything rolling. Wow. And, you know, yeah, and again, you know, for her especially, like, her face was pressed up everywhere on pieces, posters, and all of them saying the same thing. Can you imagine? I'm trying to imagine how Cheryl Lee felt at that time in her life. Like, or just in a general sense, like, certain particular actors and actresses that are not just even in film and television, but like just people in those moments when all of a sudden you become like, oh, like downright famous, like, and, you know, well-known in such a short amount of time. Um, yeah. It must've been very interesting well, for her. Especially for her. Cause again, like I said, she, she was a theater actress before that. And now suddenly <laughs> she took everywhere. And, what a leap. And again, she, <laughs> Yeah, and again, she only, you know, up until Madeline shows up, she was only really just a, a dead body in a lake, and still everyone wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. Damn. Um, and, you know, nowadays, this, this idea of the young high school sweetheart, prom queen, you know, homecoming queen. Oh, it's been milked out over the decades. <laughs> Oh, it's 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 basically a trope now. Oh yeah, you know, we definitely see it everywhere. Uh, you know, it's been inspired so often in in episodes of the X Files, Silence of the Lambs, Pretty Little Liars, episodes of Law and Order, CSI, True Detective, Riverdale. Oh yeah, this this but but it kind of all comes back to Laura Palmer. It really comes back to this idea of. Laura Palmer showing up and really affecting this small town community and changing everything and having this mystery last many episodes and not knowing who the killer is and the excitement that was around it. And it was really kind of like, again, we're, we're, we're so spoiled now because, you know, now we get excited by like, you know, oh, like, you know, like when, when Infinity War came around, oh, what's going to happen in Infinity War or like, um, all these things, but 
the fuck then it was just like the excitement seeing them week to week it does not knowing and just having people the people in front of you to engage with it really is it it does make me wonder that and i have been noticing this a bit more recently that i do really love marvel films like i do love those big films i i loved when infinity war came out and and endgame and stuff like that but i have been noticing more and more a sort of conversation that because as you said like we're so spoiled with this our ways of how we view you know films and tv shows these days that there is sort of a nostalgia missing uh feeling like longing for that from the 90s that for for me personally at least growing up that like how you describe this newspaper com- like things about laura palmer it just reminds me of when i was a kid and like i would wake up in the morning my dad would be at the dining room table and he would have the newspaper and like newsday and i would be really excited to look at the section in the newspaper when the movie times were going to be and when we were going to go to like you know the patchog theater in the woods that actually would have been like a perfect freaking twin peaks location in the show um do you remember the Bachelor yeah. theater like how it was just like in the middle of the woods and had that pink neon lighting and like the the ceiling with the mirror looking back, back at you and it was a it, as a kid it felt like a flipping church ceiling like it was so high um but yeah i just the most exciting thing in the world, <laughs> it actually. was i just went down nostalgia lane there but yeah i think it is an interesting conversation to have that the more that we're given and how we are entertained as viewers and cinema and and so on it does make me curious of how it can get diluted along the way and how it's not as exciting it's we just learn a new adaptable way of to be excited about something and twin peaks definitely has kind of brought me back into a sense of what i miss and in a sad way can tell will never be the same again um but, you know, because I'm getting to watch it for the first time, although I'm watching it like on Netflix, <laughs> on a streaming service, it still is very much reminding me of, you know, those little movie time slots in the newspaper. And, um, yeah, it's great. And that 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 makes me really happy because this is absolutely a show that should make you feel nostalgic. Oh, you feel, definitely feeling it. You know, warm for, for better days. And, uh, and it all it all all started with uh Palmer. Yeah. Um, the inciting incident started it all. Started <laughs> again. A phenomenon. And we uh here we are, thirty years later, still talking about it. My oh my. Because I know. I know. <laughs> Oh my God! This many of us, like, it didn't take too long for you to to push buttons about what you know and I don't. Okay, be that way. Whatever. I got a white claw. Four in my episodes hand. I'll be in. Fine. I lasted. I lasted long enough. <laughs> well, Janine. Mm-hmm. At this point, time for me to uh, take you downtown to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station because I've got a couple of questions to ask you. Yeah, yeah, I'm used to this. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, Janine, what was your favorite scene in the episode? Overall, it really was a good episode. Um, I, uh, I have to say the probably the 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 funeral scene. Um, 
it just was like a really well, especially now I'm, and it's also even more awesome to know that, uh, what was it? A woman named Tina, like a woman directed this episode, uh, Tina. So like I give her props to how she, you can tell that she actually was quite close probably with the cast because in this episode, they really kind of get under the surface with them cracking with their emotions in a way that is like really intense and kind of like all over the place. And, um, but that scene in particular, I think I was just impressed with that, like, for the first time, like, a person in front of a lot of people from Twin Peaks was just, like, calling people out on their shit. And it was kind of, like, it makes it a little bit, you know, um, I guess satisfying, really. So, yeah, the funeral scene was my favorite. Is that what you wanted to know? Am I answering him correctly? <laughs> I forget that this is, like, That's- a partial interrogation scene. <laughs> ah. This is how this works. I asked the question, and you answered. <laughs> all right, you mean who won the episode? Of all the characters, who do you think came out on top? No hesitation, Audrey won this episode with that hair. I don't care what anyone else I, says; it, it's the hair. I mean, Donna, close, close runner-up with the hat, but the hair, Audrey. That who's her hairstylist? And enough said. One won the next three episodes with that hairdo, I'll say. <laughs> one the season. It's so season's epic, over. so sleek yeah. and sexy. It was amazing. Okay. And Janine, mm-hmm. last but not least, and the theme of this episode, who killed Laura? <laughs> it's funny now because I'm thinking of how how the the girl in the scene with Madeline the, is <laughs> like how do I answer that now because of that whole um oh, every time we go into this question like and when I go into the podcast I'm like oh yeah I'll have an answer and then it just it fades into thin air because it's such an like the show has so many different characters that it's so hard to ever Every episode, it still just makes it more difficult to figure out, uh, to guess who killed Laura Palmer. But if we have to come to a conclusion, and since I'm being interrogated under a hot light above me, I'll say... <sighs> Ooh, I'm going to... Oh, I'm just going with... I'm I, Anyone that hears, I'm just going with my gut. I'm impulse saying Harry Truman. Which I'm so surprised I'm okay. saying that right now. But I, sometimes when I answer that question, actually most of the time when I answer this question from you, I just blurt out a name because it really is hard for me to <laughs> gather some assessment of who I really think has killed Laura Palmer. It's such a mystery still at this point. This, you know, it's still early in the show, but even with the amount of groundwork they've that has been made, it's still so much a mystery. Um, but Harry Truman... He seems like a character I've not felt fishy about actually throughout the whole thing. So that's why I think I'm going to say that now. He seems like he has too much. But then again, what am I saying? He had a clean streak and then all of a sudden he was like, yeah, welcome to the bookhouse boys <laughs> and are illegal underground <laughs> shit. So what am I talking about? But yeah, let's say Harry Truman this episode. I have no, <laughs> there is no um, like technique or groundwork I have when it comes to answering that last question with you. <laughs> it's so bad. But um yeah, sure. Truman for now. All right, Truman for now. <laughs> um, yeah, so far, so far there hasn't been like a through line. I think, I think four episodes in, you've named someone different each episode. Yeah. 
I'm I'm waiting for to see if you ever get like one person that you're like, no, that's that. I know. I I thought I was going to actually have like feel that early on with the show, but I don't feel that at at all. I I really actually am like, there's a part of me that wants to all of a sudden be like, Laura, like Laura's still alive. Like she's not dead or something, but I don't know. Like, I really don't know because let's be honest, it's me and I'm trying to play it. Like it's not me because Jay for Janine. (laughs) Excited about meeting Jay tonight. (laughs) All right. Well, that was the fourth episode of Twin Peaks. Rest in pain. Thanks, y'all. Rest in pain. Thanks, y'all, for tuning in. Tune in next time as we discuss the fifth episode, episode four. I know it's confusing. (laughs) Uh, Need any final thoughts? (sighs) Just rest up. Because I'm need like before the next episode, rest up guys if you're watching this show. It requires a lot of energy because it's too good to watch sleepy. <laughs> rest up. Drink some water. A little and Amen. Yeah. <laughs> amen. Amen. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Welcome to Twin Speaks is edited by Janine Purse and produced by Mike Dowd with music by RJ Mills. Follow us on Instagram at welcome to Twin Speaks or you can email us at welcome to Twin Speaks at gmail.com.